1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, the Bible reads, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For if, uh, sorry, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. We are on a journey to understand what the church is from the biblical perspective. And it seems to me the more that we look at the teaching in the scripture regarding this subject, the more we observe just how far removed the modern church is from God's plan in the Bible. The vast majority of churches today are entertainment centers. They appeal to the emotions but do not provide solid biblical truths which transform lives. Evangelism is not the primary concern of the church. Everybody hear that? Evangelism is not the primary concern of the church. The glory of God is. Today, the evangelical church is more concerned with being culturally relevant and exciting than operating with holiness and love. The Lord Jesus tells us that the world will know the reality of the gospel and our faith based upon our love for one another. John thirteen thirty five. Furthermore, we will be different from the world in our appetites, in our affections, in our actions, which demonstrate that we are a holy nation called out by God. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 to 10 tells us. We've strayed a long way in contemporary church culture from the scriptures. And in our previous studies throughout this passage of scripture, We've considered the following points, and I just want to summarize a bit of review before we enter into this last message, Lord willing, uh, of this particular subject. 
We learnt in the first week that the local church is Christ's body. Verse 12 says here, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. The local church is Christ's body. Then we learnt about the subject of unity in diversity through the Spirit. Verse 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. We talked about the subject of baptism with the Spirit. We talked about the diversities in the church. And let me encourage you, if this is all unfamiliar, take a copy of those messages, take a copy of those sermon notes. They're all available for you to read. Thirdly, we looked at the essential role of every individual member in the local church. And verses 14 to 17 tell us that there's no dispensable parts, no dispensable parts in the local church. Members of the body are mutually dependent, we learnt. And that there is the sovereign appointment of each member. Remember we talked about that in uh, just a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the fact that you are not here by accident. God has sovereignly appointed you to be here. God has so much so put you together as he did call you to salvation. That's what we looked at the last time. And so this morning as we continue in 1 Corinthians 12, if you will find verses 25 and 26... We're going to finish this aspect today on the body concept, part three. Lord willing, the final part of this before we launch into another very exciting little series, uh, hopefully starting next week. So we look at the body concept, part number three. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you uh, asking that you would uh, use this time in your word, uh, Lord, for the study that has been done, uh, for, the, for the notes that are before me, for the thoughts that you will bring to my mind. Uh, for the different subjects that you would, uh, you would help us to understand better, and for individual application and conviction, we pray, uh, Lord, that each of us would be sensitive to it, uh, that you would minister effectively to each of us, that we would yield accordingly to the Spirit of God as he would seek to show us personally different things. Help us uh, in these next moments together in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 25... After having given us a summary of all the different areas of the body, the Apostle Paul says that there may be no division in the body. And so the first point I want you to note here is the body must not be divided. The body must not be divided. The word used here for this word division is the Greek word schisma. We get the English word schism from that, and we're probably familiar with that word. Literally, it means to rent. It means to divide, to produce a split or a gap. The picture there for us would be on the the day the Lord Jesus Christ died, there was a schism in the temple, a curtain. There was a, a ripping, a tearing that came from the finger of God from the top to the bottom. And there ought not to be in this particular context anything that causes a renting or a dividing or a split or a gap in the local church. Many of us are familiar with the devastating effects of church splits and divisions. We've seen it perhaps firsthand, read about it, seen the results in other people's lives. And it's a terrible situation. 
But 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to, uh, verses 12 to 26 is the handbook on how not to have a church split. I want us to remember, remember the context here. I want us to come back to what the scripture here says. Remember what the church at Corinth is like. It's not the ideal church. It's not the church that we strive to emulate. Because we read in chapter 1 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says in his same book, earlier in the book, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions, schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, just before our chapter here in verse 18, Paul writes, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Um, some have called it the Corinthian catastrophe. It's true. There are some real problems in this church at Corinth. But you know what I learn in the scriptures? The local church will not be divided when the members operate in unity together for the glory of Christ. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that the body will be unified when each member is mature in the word and doctrine, speaks the truth in love, operates with Christ-likeness and works cohesively together in love. See, God's plan of unifying people of diverse backgrounds in the Spirit, through the Spirit, sovereignly arranging those members of the body, bringing them together, ensuring that every member has a part to play by exercising their gifts and instructing the seemingly weaker, less honourable and unpresentable parts to be effectively ministered to, safeguards against the schisms and splits in Christ's bride. This whole passage is about how a church is to function and operate, a local Body, And when we do it, there is no danger of this matter of division. But when we get out of line, when we don't follow the biblical pattern, we are always at ever-present danger regarding this matter. This morning, I want to make a few comments on the subject of divisions. I want to make a few comments, and I've, I've entitled this The Divisions, Disorders and Abnormalities in the Body of Christ. These are just some general thoughts taken from all over the scriptures, as well as some experience. And there's eight things I just want to quickly point out as it relates to division. Things we know, but just to remind us of this morning. Number one, the enemy of our soul, the devil, is on a mission to sow discord and division in the church of Jesus Christ. We must remember that. We must remember that 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 and 9 are still in the book, which says he walks around seeking whom he may devour. He's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking to believers. The church is at war. What we do this morning is not just a, an everyday thing. This isn't just a, a habit we do. This isn't just a religious activity that doesn't have any meaning. The, the hordes of hell and the, the enemies of darkness rage and mount up against all that is done in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, because that is an invisible situation, we so often forget the reality of it. 
Now, I don't want to be one of those pastors who makes us look under every rock for a demon. That's not the point. The point is this, though. We must recognize that this is war. What I am accomplishing this morning by the power of the Spirit of God is warfare. To preach from the Word of God is to sound forth the truth in a culture that is totally void of biblical objective truth. And any pastor who mounts the pulpit today all over this country who honours the word of God and rightly divides it is at great danger. Great warfare exists and great warfare exists for the church who listens and takes it on and says, I will do whatever the Lord says. I will obey because you have just been put into the minority where the crosshair of devil, the devil is upon you. You make yourself a target when you say, yes, Lord. I will follow you, I will obey, I will live what I see in the scriptures. And so we need to understand that divisions and disorders and abnormalities in the body of Christ come because, not just from ourselves, but because there is a great enemy waging warfare. Secondly, and I just alluded to this, every meeting of the church is a spiritual battle. Now, most of you know my position as it relates to the church. I don't think the church is a one-day-a-week thing. I don't think that what we do here this morning is any more important than any other aspect of our church. This is just one of the meetings of this church. We'll have, uh, we'll have another meeting tomorrow for Bible study. We'll have another meeting for our church on Wednesday night when truth seekers come together. We'll have another meeting on, on Friday and another meeting on Saturday and so forth. The church comes together in all these different things. And every time we come together collectively... We We are at war. Now, we're at war in our own personal lives every day against the the hostility of the enemy. But uh, when we come together purposefully as a church, we are in a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places, against the enemies of darkness that wage warfare against us. And so when it comes to division, disorders and abnormalities, every time we come together... It's a spiritual battle. Thirdly, division will occur in the church when sin is not dealt with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we won't turn there, but some serious things are happening in the church at Corinth. And Paul says a little leaven leavens the entire lump. In fact, we could go back to Joshua. You remember that story of Achan where he stole those things there at Jericho that were supposed to be set aside for the Lord. And, uh, and then they go up to Ai and they're going to battle the Israelites and they lose a whole bunch of men. And Joshua cries out to God and says, why did we lose here? And the Lord says to Joshua, you've lost this battle because, paraphrasing, there is sin in the camp. In the New Testament, we find Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so sin that is not dealt with, sin that is not confessed, sin that continues to harbor in the hearts of individual people and then affects the whole thing will bring about division, will bring about disorder and abnormality in the body of Christ. Number four, division occurs when pride and selfishness reign. In James chapter 4, again, we won't turn there right now, but in James chapter 4, James asks the question, where does fighting and wars come? From where do they come from? And 
James answers that question and says they come from within. They come from us, our own flesh, our own desires, our passions are at war within us. And if we will walk in the flesh as opposed to walking in the spirit, we will have divisions in the church. And when there's enough of, a, of people who are going to do that, there will be immediately a split that takes place. Because it has to when the flesh and the spirit are at war and when it begins to constantly exist in the lives of Christians, there will be division, there will be disorder, there will be abnormality in the body of Christ. Number five, division will occur when there is a kingdom discrepancy. So what do you mean by that? One of the saddest passages in all of the scripture is Matthew chapter 7. Where some stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, we did this in your name. Lord, we did that in your name. And the Lord Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, you are not one of mine. And here's what the problem is in many churches today is we have two kingdoms existing in the same place, making decisions for God's glory. And that is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so when the church is uh, diluted in the sense that not everybody is truly a Christian and just because you're on a membership role doesn't make you a Christian, when you have a discrepancy in the kingdom, when you have a discrepancy in the church of Jesus Christ, how can two walk together except they be agreed? How can light coexist with darkness? The answer is it cannot. And so there is going to be division. There is going to be problems. And so I caution you this morning, as Hebrews says, be very sure of your calling. Know that you are his. Know that you are not just along for the ride. Are you truly known of Christ? Because if not, there will be division if it is left to itself. Number six, division will occur when there is a walking disorder. So what does that mean? There are two types of Christians. Spirit-filled and not spirit-filled. They're the two places you can be in this morning as a Christian. Either I am walking in obedience to the Spirit of God. I am living a life free from sin. I'm walking as I ought to, as Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says. Or I am fulfilling the lust of my flesh, gratifying the natural desires that are there. They are the only two places you can be. And it is instantaneous that you can go from this To that and vice versa. The moment I decide to no longer obey the impulses of the Spirit of God within me, I move to the place of living in the flesh. The moment that from the flesh I say, Lord, I confess that sin, I walk back to a place of Spirit-filled living as a Christian. When we have a group of people such as this, a congregation, where some walk in the Spirit and some will not, when we have that existing in the church, it will eventually result... In division and split. Because those who continually feed the flesh, those who continually want to do their own thing and desires and passions, those people get together. We have cliques in the church. These people over here say, well, we don't want to be part of that. And not too long from there comes a place where there is division. And there is potentially, sadly, splitting. Number seven, division will occur when there are opinions instead of objective biblical truth. Division will occur when there are opinions instead of objective biblical truth. I have sat in business meetings, church meetings over the years, and I have watched how people have expressed opinions that really don't matter when it comes to biblical truth. 
For example, I remember years ago a major outbreak in a church that occurred over the colour of the carpet. Now we can, we can laugh and even scoff at situations like that, but the reality of it is you walk in the flesh for a little while and that's going to bother you a whole lot what colour the carpet is. You walk in the flesh for a little while and you're going to be really concerned about the drapes. You're going to be concerned about this and that. God protect us as a local assembly from being concerned with opinions as it relates to objective biblical truth. I've sat in board meetings where things occur that are all about opinion. Well, I think we should do this. Well, quite frankly, when it comes to the ministry and the glory of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you or I think. It matters what the scripture says. And if the scripture is silent on it, we pray and we come together and we unanimously make a decision following the biblical principles that surround it. But when the scripture says something, when it makes it abundantly clear, we submit to the objective truth of scripture, not the opinions of men. It doesn't matter what I think as a pastor as it relates to things generally unless they're founded in the scriptures. It's sort of like when people come to me and they say, well, what do you think I should do about this particular situation? And the scripture doesn't speak directly about that. The answer is, I have no idea. I don't know what God wants you to do in your life. I don't know what what color dress you should wear to that. I don't know what type of car you should buy. I don't know what you should do with that extra savings. That's between you and the Lord. But when it comes to, hey, listen, what should I do about this particular situation where the scripture is very clear? We come to the scripture and we say, Lord, what will you have us to do here? And the answer comes from the scripture. We walk in that, not in the opinions of men. If we walk in the opinions of men, we will end up in division Disorders and abnormalities. Lastly, and there are so many more, but number eight, division will occur in the church when Christ is not preeminent. We say, be thou my vision. Jesus Christ, be thou my vision. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is absolutely essential because the moment we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, we are liable to fall into any one of these situations and take the whole of the congregation even down that path if we're not incredibly careful. We must all maintain a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, not on the leadership, not on our spouse, not on our friends, not on the fellowship, but on Jesus Christ. Because only as our order is correct will everything fall into place. You get that order wrong. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, then you can't minister effectively to one another. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, idols will creep in and you will begin to worship them. And before you know it, you'll be down this path over here and you may have taken a whole bunch of people with you. Disorders. Divisions, abnormalities come when Christ is not preeminent. And so we see that the reality here is that there may be no division in the body. And that no division in the body in verse 25 comes from us walking as we ought to in the church of Jesus Christ, operating uh, as we ought to as a church and with all of these other things mentioned here from various places in Scripture. In verse 26 we see, excuse me, at the end of verse 25, we see, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The second thing I want you to see here this morning in this text, which is where we'll spend the remainder of our time, is this matter of mutual care and empathy for one another. Second point is the mutual care and empathy for one another. Look in verse 25 
After Paul says that there may be no division in the body, the very next word is the word but. And so many times I've said this, and I'm sure you know it, it's conjunction that denotes contrast. Here is what is being said. Paul says, don't let there be divisions. Instead, let the church operate with care and empathy for one another. In this context, division is on one side, care and empathy is on the other. It is a contrast. Instead of being divided, Corinthian church, instead of having schisms and problems, operate with care and empathy for one another. Now the word care here speaks of concern, speaks of looking out for one another, providing for and ministering to one another without discrimination. Now some of you are looking in the text perhaps and saying, I don't see the word empathy. Empathy is nowhere in that, that passage of scripture and it's not. But in verse 26, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. That is the very definition of empathy. Here is what empathy really means. It was coined in 1908. It's a relatively new word, this word empathy. It comes from the Greek word empathia, which means in feeling. In feeling. And interestingly enough, it was originally used in the realm of art appreciation. Now, we've got some people here, Bob, who's an artist. We've got a few other people here who are artists. I am not an artist, so I have very little... I appreciate what I see on the wall, but I have no idea how to do it. Here, this word empathy in the English came from those who appreciate art. And it would be the concept that the viewer of that image that has been painted would project his personality into the viewed object. So what in the world is all that about? In other words, this is what it means. Empathy is exercising your mind and your heart towards another and coming to terms with their circumstance. So the picture here is I look at a painting and I see a beautiful image. I see uh, some sort of a panorama or, or some sort of a, maybe a, a seascape. And I look at it and I see someone perhaps sitting on a bench there. And I imagine myself to be in that image looking at exactly the same uh, view, their viewpoint. And so my, my mind is engaged and my emotions are engaged. That's how the word empathy came into existence in the English language. I believe that that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do here in verse 26. Exercise your mind and heart towards another and come to terms with their circumstance. That's why you can say, when they suffer, you suffer. When they rejoice, you rejoice. And we want to talk about that in some specifics here. I have a number of sub-points, no surprise there. And uh, let me just quickly move through these to give us the picture. First of all, care and empathy. These two things are subsets of love. Paul is talking about this matter of care, concern, compassion, empathy. All of, they, all of those spring forth from love. They are subsets of love. So here is a statement, church, for us to realize. It is impossible to operate with genuine care and empathy where true love is not in existence. Okay? It is impossible. 
You say, does that mean that the world can't understand this? Yes, that's what, the world, that's what it means. That's exactly what it means because 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we are, is followed by what chapter? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the point of that is this. You can have, Paul says at the beginning, you can have all the gifts. You can have everything you want. You can have it all in perfect order. But if you fail in this one thing, you've got nothing. And that one thing is love. Agape love that is shed abroad in your hearts by the Spirit of God. So you can try, you can put this on, but it's not the real deal unless you have truly the love of God within. It's an impossibility. And that's why we say love is the essential ingredient of the church. And it finds its origin in the Spirit of God. Romans 5, 5. The Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. This is only possible for the Christian. It's only possible for the church. Do you know why, and this is absolutely essential, do you know why it is the church that is to be the evangelistic tool by means of love? It's because they're the only ones who've got it. The real love. The, the world ought to stand back and say, what is going on in that place? How is it possible that they operate with this? And the answer is, the love of God is shed abroad in the midst of those people. Changes everything. Love is the essential ingredient in the church. But we see also that love is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. And it is the new law by which the believer lives. Second John verses 5-6. to six. This is the law by which we live. The law of love. See, the love of Christ, this root, fruit, from which comes care and empathy, does not stop at care and empathy. For us, we would probably appreciate it to some degree if agape love only had to be manifested in the realm of care and empathy. But in actual fact, 1 John 3.16 says it goes so far as to lay down its life for the brethren. I know I harp on this all the time, but church, we've got to get this. This is not just a gathering. This is a family that would jump in, in front of a bus for one another. This is a group of people who say, I love you so much. The blood of Christ has regenerated me like it has you. We are brother and sister. We are family and I'll do anything for you so much so that I would lay down my life for you. This is revolutionary. This is life changing. This is not what we see in the church today. And yet this is what the church is. I mentioned this before, but the greatest evangelistic tool in our hands is our love for one another. You get that? The greatest evangelistic tool that we have is not the latest promotions and the greatest programs. It's not the loudest music. It's not the most welcoming church. It is our love for one another. John 13, 34, the Lord Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I'm going to jump on a hobby horse for just a moment here. Okay, and I'm going to ride it for just a few seconds. I am so sick of hearing this concept of evangelism. Now, let me just explain what I mean by that. You are, when you were birthed into Christ, you became an ambassador for Christ. No question. 
We believe in preaching the gospel, no question. We believe in living out the gospel, no question. But the primary purpose, as I mentioned before, of the church is not what I hear all the time, that we would preach the gospel. That's not the primary purpose. That comes out of our primary purpose. The primary purpose is the glorification of Jesus Christ. And from that purpose comes every other aspect of church life. Evangelism, mutually building one another up, uh, loving one another, exhorting one another, etc., etc., etc. Giving, 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 grace and mercy and all those other truths. They all come out of this one thing which is the glorification of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. Now, if we get evangelism in an imbalance, what we will have is a group of people who feel that their entire job is to go out and preach the gospel, which is true as ambassadors. But what they will fail to do is live as the church. Church is what we are. Evangelism is what we do. Church is what we are. Our identity is in Christ. We are family first and foremost that in our individual lives go out and preach the gospel. That's fine. That's what we're supposed to do. But when we get it out of kilter, and I see this all, I see it on Facebook every day of my life. All these pastors on Facebook who are saying, we need to get out there, we need to get out there, we need to get out there. It's true, we do need to get out there and preach the gospel. We also need to be a family together. We also need to function effectively and unified together. And if we spent a little bit more time on the love aspect, I believe we'd see a harvest of souls come in because the world itself would say, wow, tell me more. How do you guys function like that? What is it that you've got that, that the love will cover a multitude of sin, that there's such unity that isn't seen anywhere else in all the world? How did you get that? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. We've got to get this right. The Bible tells us we need to walk in love. Walk in at Ephesians 5.2. And only as we do this will we be able to operate with genuine care and compassion for the members of of the body. I need to move on. Second sub point here is that care and empathy, these two things, need to increase. They don't stay stagnant. Because they are subsets of love, we need to see what the scripture says about growing in love. Because if we grow in love, obviously we will grow in this matter of empathy and care. Throughout the New Testament, the believer in the church is instructed to grow. In love. Really important we understand this. When we become a Christian, the fruit of the Spirit become a reality in our life. Love, joy, peace, etc., etc., etc. They're all there. But we grow in them. We don't get the fullness of them at that moment. We are to mature in them. That's sanctification. And I want to list off a whole bunch of verses for you to look up sometime, but I'll read them out to you. First Thessalonians 3.12, Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So that, that tells me that we don't have it all together. That our love isn't perfected. We grow in it. Philippians 1.9, Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound yet more and more, increasing and growing and augmenting and, and, and being multiplied. 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 7 is an interesting passage of Scripture. For this reason, Peter writes, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. 
Faith is being built on all the time, adding, 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 adding as we walk in the Spirit. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you is increasing. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says to his Young son, the pastor at Ephesus, he says, flee youthful passions, but pursue righteousness and love. And he goes on to say other things. Pursue it. Follow it. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so it's essential we see that care and empathy must increase. If it stays the same as what it has always been, there is something wrong with it. That's not how it works. Second last sub point. Care and empathy are spiritual responsibilities of every member. Now, some of you may have wondered about this. I'm not sure if you have or not, but many churches have a designated care ministry. Now, this is not the case at MCCBC because I don't believe in it. And here's why. I believe it is the responsibility of every single member of this body to care for one another. I don't want that being designated to a person who may even have the gift of caring and, and, and helps and so forth. I don't want one person responsible for that. I want every person who is a member of this local assembly to go out and care for one another. And if we make a care ministry coordinator, that person will suddenly become the default person to do all of those things. And God forbid that there would be one person in our midst functioning as the care person to the withdrawal of all others. I don't want to let that happen. And so we need to, all of us, have a care ministry to one another. That's the reality of why we don't have a care person or a care administrator. I want to make another comment here too. And it's personal because it relates to my office as a pastor. But you know the scripture tells us that the pastor is the under-shepherd. And I am to be, and I fail... But I am to be a leader in this matter of care and empathy. I'm supposed to be that. And I know that I fail in that all the time. But it's really important as a church, we understand this. It's not my responsibility alone. I am not the sole individual in this church who is supposed to be only concerned with care and empathy for one another. I'm supposed to operate with my gifts, which are to teach and various other gifts that God has given me. But every one of us needs to operate in this realm. Now, I need to be a leader in love. I need to be a leader in compassion and empathy. And uh, by God's grace, I seek to emulate that. But it ought not to stop with me. Don't think for a moment, well, that's the pastor's job. Well, the pastor will visit them. No, you visit them. I'll visit them. You visit them. Um, I'll send them a card, you send them a card. Uh, I was going to say, I'll cook a meal, but you don't want me to cook a meal. So you cook a meal. But you understand the, the, the point there? The point there is that it doesn't stop with the leadership. It is every Christian's individual responsibility to care and have empathy with one another. We're to be actively involved in one another's lives. Very quickly, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? This is probably the most important passage on this subject as it relates to love and care and empathy and compassion. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And then we'll draw to a close in just a few moments. 
Paul writes Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have here love, we have here compassion, we have here sympathy, we have joy, we have uh, the uh, absence of selfish ambition, we have humility, and we have looking out for one another in the church. And that's what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 12. The last thing that I want you to see this morning, which has a few practical applications, is that care and empathy is only possible through real fellowship. Care and empathy is only possible through real fellowship. Here's what I mean. For the body to demonstrate care and to empathize with the sorrows and joys of others, there must be an intimate knowledge of one another. There must be a willingness to share. There must be a willingness to be transparent. There must be a willingness to be vulnerable. You see, others cannot minister to you if you are proud and unwilling to let them in. Now, I have received some negative feedback regarding uh, our cell group concept, and I've received some very positive feedback. I've received some negative and uh, some, some have said that uh, what we are seeking to accomplish in that is, uh, is unhelpful and, uh, and they, they've listed their reasons, which are fine. But when it comes to care and empathy, when it comes to living in one another's pockets and in each other's lives, that only becomes a reality when we are prepared to let the guard down. When we are prepared to say, you know what, I'm not really as strong as I make out to be. You know, I'm really wrestling in this area of sin. Um, because of church culture today, we form hypocrisies. We put on the masks and we say, everything's fine. I dress up nice to church. I don't want anybody invading my personal space. Well, well folks, that's not church. And I'm not prepared for us as a local assembly to operate like that. Because that's not church. That's not what family is. Family comes together and family says, hey, listen, there's some problems in your life. There's some problems in my life. Let's catch up. Let's, let's, let's meet for a coffee. Let's talk about it. Let's work through this. Let's pray together. Let's weep together. Let's grieve together. Let's be joyous together. Let, let's, let's be thrilled at what is happening in your life. Let's be downcast at what's happening so that we might be able to see where the problems are and, and come together. That's what Romans 12 says when it says weep with those who weep. And rejoice with those who rejoice. That is what this is. It is letting the guard down. It's letting people in. It is operating as church. And I believe it's high time that church got back to true fellowship. Now, if we understand this word koinonia in the Greek, if we really understand it, this is what it will look like. It literally means sharing, communion and commonality. 
See, the great problem in the mainstream church culture today is this matter of knowledge and fellowship. Here's what we have. And again, I'm not seeking to be offensive this morning, but I am wanting to just point out truth. Superficiality and emotionalism run rampant through the church of Jesus Christ. And these are a poor substitute for true fellowship. Here's what generally happens. People attend an entertaining, emotive church service and they get a spiritual high. They go away feeling like I'm really pumped up. But you know what happens? And I have counseled so many people like this over the years. They, they, the, the first thing that happens in their week that, that brings them undone because the high wasn't sufficient, they go lower and lower and lower. And so they need another spiritual high. And so the, the music needs to be louder and the illustrations need to be more pertinent and the emotions need to run high because I need to overcome my, my heart issues by way of external situations. That's not church. That's not fellowship. That's just covering up superficiality and emotionalism. That's all that is. What we really need is we need solid biblical teaching that gets to the heart and the root of the problem. We need counselling and we need true soul care from one another. We need others to say, I care about you more than I care about myself. How can I minister to you? What can I possibly do to help you? Tell me, I want to do anything. Peter says... In 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all. And I I could harp on this for so much time and I'm not going to, but here is what I'm going to do as we close. I want to ask this question and answer it. How do we show care and empathy for the brethren? Some of you are going to say, hang on, you're never going to get through this. I have 10. Did I, did I hear a big sigh? Oh, no. Okay, ten, ten things that I just want to try and race through here this morning, but these are the practicalities. So all of that is information. These are ten things, and there's hundreds, but here's ten. Ten ways to show care and empathy. Number one, and it all begins with number one. Stop being so preoccupied with your own endeavors and look out for others. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. See, Paul says something that we don't really fully appreciate, I don't think any of us, myself included here. He says, don't think about your own interests. Think about the interests of others. We are so preoccupied with our own lives. We're so preoccupied with our work, perhaps, or with our own personal, physical, biological families. We're so preoccupied with all that's before us. We're so preoccupied. We're such a busy culture. We're such an immediate culture. Everything is go, 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 go. And it's all mostly about me. And if we follow the culture as a church, we will end up in this place of superficiality where we come together one day a week just to catch up, shake a few hands, ask him about the football, and that's about it. That's what church is today in most places. Whereas biblical church says, my ideas, my goals, my plans, they're not as important as how I can help, how I can minister to somebody else. So stop being preoccupied with your own endeavours and look out for others. Now, bear in mind, I'm not saying that we we just say, okay, that's it, cool. I'm not going to do anything around the house anymore. I'm not going to do anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let's get it in the right order and let's be thinking about others, not just ourselves. Number two. I want to challenge every one of us here this morning with this concept. Actively, every one of us, actively 
pursue someone in this assembly who you can minister to. Go through your directory. And if it's not up to date, we'll do a new one. And pray and say, Lord, I want someone in this directory, someone in this local church that I am going to specifically make a beeline for. And if you've got more time and you can do more than one, great. But start with one and say, I'm going to bless the socks off this person. They're not going to know what hit them when I'm done with them. I want to give. I want to send them cards. I want to help them. I want to do whatever my spiritual gift is in helping them. I just want to do it. I want to actively pursue someone. Number three, look for specific opportunities to operate with your spiritual gift or gifts. Now, I appreciate we haven't gone through that spiritual gifting yet. We're coming to that. That's going to be very, very soon. I'm just waiting for Peter and Judy to go away again because they've been waiting so long for this subject. Look for an opportunity. To use your spiritual gifts. I don't know what it is. Okay, that's fine. Stay tuned. But if you do know some of the heart's desires that you have, and and there are people in this assembly, and I already am convinced of the multiplicity of gifts in this assembly. I've seen it already in operation. Use your gift effectively. It was given to you not to bless the outside world. It was given to you for the local church. God put you here and equipped you and enabled you to serve in this place for one another. And I'm not just talking about cleaning the building. The building isn't the church. I'm talking about in one another's lives. Okay, I, I'm getting to a point where I'm really getting tired of hearing people say things like, you know what, use your gifts, come to a church working bee. Now, there's, there's truth to the part that if you have a gift of helps, one of the things you might be able to do is do some practical things. But you know what, it was never about the building it was always about people. Okay, now we do have some cobwebs around the place and we need to look after those and take care of that. But that's not what the, that's not what the spiritual gifts are for. Spiritual gifts are for edifying one another, building one another up. Number four, I better race through these. Visit one another. Open up your home to others in the pattern of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 to 46. By the way, if you get a copy of these notes, you'll see all the verses next to them. I don't have time to go through them all now. You're just going to have to trust me until you read them. Visit one another. Go visit people. You hear someone's in the hospital. Don't wait for me to go. Beat me there. I love it when I get somewhere and I go to the hospital and I see someone and there's already been three or four other people from our church who've been there. That's, that's a wonderful... That thrills and excites me because it means that people aren't saying, well, the pastor will take care of all of that because it's our responsibility as individuals as God sees fit to give us the fuel and the ability and the time to do it. I love it when I hear that meals are getting cooked for one another when someone's sick, someone's visiting this person, someone's sending a card. Open up your own homes. Hospitality is almost a lost art in the church these days. We're prepared to go for a cafe meal. But how often do we open our homes and say, hey, listen, I haven't got a whole lot of food, but I'd love you to come over. And you know what? It's not about the food. It doesn't matter if you give someone toast. Give them toast, but have some fellowship around the dining room table in your home or in their home. That's church. And if you are a part of the church and understand church, you won't care what you're getting fed. I'll even eat mushrooms at someone else's house. Number five. I can't believe I just said that on the recording. That's going to be haunting me for the rest of my life. Number five. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. You know, part of church is just listening to people. We have needs, don't we? We have issues, we have problems, we have things we can't work through ourselves. Just bear one another's burdens. Hey, listen, I want to take that. 
I want to, I want, I want to help you with that. I want you to, I want to help carry that. I want to spend some time with you. You know what we normally do in our natural sense is we take a wide berth of someone with real issues. That's not Christ. Christ sat with the prostitutes and the publicans in the gutter. That's what we're supposed to do. And even if those people are to come into our church assembly, don't, don't go sit on another pew. Sit right next to them. Put your arm around them. Show them the love of Christ. Because that's what the Lord Jesus did. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Number six, encourage and build one another up. You think about what that looks like. Number seven, contribute financially. Materially to the needs of the brethren. Romans 12, 13 says that. 1 John 3, 17 tells us, He who has the world's goods and shuts up his bowels of compassion towards the brethren. How can the love of God exist in him? How can it be that I see you in trouble? I can help and say, No, no, no. Someone else will take care of that. Something's wrong. That's not the love of God displayed, John says. We could talk about that some more. Each of these are a message on their own. Number eight. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Romans twelve fifteen. I mentioned that before. When was the last time that you wept with someone? When was the last time where you're, you were pained in your heart, just like that empathetic concept of that picture, you saw them weeping and it invaded your own heart so that it wasn't a display, a fake display, it was a real thing. Um, let me just give a real quick illustration. Some years ago, I was involved in a circumstance where a, uh, uh, a man had, uh, had committed some, some grave error, some grave sin, and he was a broken man. And uh, I love him dearly, and so I walked into uh, his office at the time, uh, and there he was, shocked at my uh, appearance, and uh, he burst into tears and uh, was weeping violently under the conviction uh, of the Holy Spirit in his life. Christian man. And the immediate response on my part, which was not, it was me, but it was not me, was to weep. Was to literally sit down on the floor, put my arm around this man and to weep uncontrollably with him. Now I can tell you that came about not because of some emotional decision on my part. It was because I loved that individual and I knew the situation they were in. I was empathising with it and instead of being judgmental because it was a grave situation... God produced a grief within my heart that I could weep with him and in weeping with him later on could rejoice with him. That's what church is. That's when someone physically here is unable to move like they are able, like they want to or they're having some battle and, and they are sorrowful and we come alongside, we put our arm around them and say, I'm sorrowful with you. I know it's hard. I don't fully appreciate it, but I want to weep with you. I want to rejoice with you when there are things to rejoice. Number nine. Associate with the lowly and cast down, Romans twelve sixteen. Literally, the word lowly means depressed. Those who are depressed, those who are downcast. We read about it this morning. David says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Our responsibility, people, is to get alongside those of us who are downcast, who are depressed, who are wrestling with the battles of life. And number 10, pray for one another. Ephesians 6.18, pray for one another. I know I have said so much here this morning, but in closing, let me remind you that the church, please, I beg of you, get this, the church is not a social club. 
that we attend once a week. It's a family and not just any family. It is the household of God. The tie that binds us together is stronger than any physical family. It is the precious blood of Christ. And let me say as a caution as we close, if we fail in this, we trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, what? That's pretty heavy. If we fail to operate as a church, we trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ because this is why he died This is the reason, this is the point that there would be a called out group of people operating with him as the head. And if we don't do it as we ought to, we trample underfoot the blood of Christ. And we do so when we distance ourselves from the brethren and operate with hypocrisy and superficiality. And so as we close, let me remind you, it is high time that we, Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church, come back to church. Biblical church heavenly father we have uh, spent a long time laboring here uh, with many things that have been shared and said Uh, and lord i just pray that uh, the message of truth uh, would prevail in all of this that we would come to appreciate biblical scriptural church as opposed to what we so often see in uh, christian culture today Uh, lord help us to uh, to be faithful to the word in this lord we Uh, we often think that because of the day and age in which we live, the Acts chapter 2 model of church and Christianity is no longer possible. Uh, I I, I fail to believe that. I I can't believe that that we can't have what the New Testament church had. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be that, that we would be those who would be, uh, we would be meeting daily where it's possible and that we would be exchanging uh, our goods for one another and helping one another and selling our possessions if necessary to, to uh, provide for one another, that we would be ministering to the widows and the afflicted, that we would be keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, uh, that, Lord, we would be all of those things that your word tells us to be. Uh, Lord, we know that we are living in days where apostasy is great, where the love of many is, uh, is waxing cold, Uh, and that uh, your return is uh, imminent. But Lord, while you tarry, Lord, may we here at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church be faithful to the truths of the word of God, we pray. Thank you for enablement. Thank you for the spirit of God who lives within us, who is our guiding and directing force. We praise you uh, for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.